0: We should demand that abortion not be covered by the criminal code. It's not a crime. It's a health issue.
1: This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, find us on Patreon or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now welcome to the award-winning Best of the Left podcast with clips today from On the Media, Dan Savage, The Real News, Off-Kilter, and The Breach.
2: Activists on both sides are in constant argument, while state houses rush in to ensure that the information gap is filled in ways they deem appropriate. But the views of the states may conflict with those of the medical profession, resulting in less clarity and more confusion, as WNYC's Mary Harris reports.
3: If Leah Torres was your obstetrician, you walked into her office and said, I want an abortion. The first thing she would do is dig into her desk for one particular folder. It's literally a script typed out to make sure she doesn't break any laws. So if you can imagine, it doesn't instill a lot of confidence. This document is long, two space pages noting every possible side effect of the procedure.
4: Mostly it's accurate, and mostly it contains the information I would have given the patient anyway.
3: But she also reads things that she would never tell a patient— It says one abortion risk is post-abortal syndrome. That's a name that's been coined for abortion regret. That syndrome does not exist. That is not a thing. And after reading that script, Torres has to ask her patient to sign a consent form that says she can request pain medication for the fetus.
4: And there's no medical evidence to support the claim that a fetus can feel pain.
3: At least in the earlier weeks of pregnancy. Which is why Torres has this technique— As she's reading the script and going over documents, periodically she'll just interrupt herself and say, that last thing I said, by the way, that isn't true. I've had patients kind of laugh
4: because it's a ridiculous situation. They sit there and they listen to it, but they're like, I don't
3: need any of this information because I know what I want to do. People know what they need. Torres practices in Utah, and the reason this conversation has become so complicated is because of gradual changes to one state law. Utah code 767305. In the last 25 years, this law has been revised at least 10 times, each change part of a slow motion tug of war over how doctors must talk about abortion. And this war of words got started here. So let me dig this out here. It began with these little Ah. booklets the state used to send out to abortion clinics. The first ones I found were published in the late mid-80s. Now you can find them in a storage closet inside a break room at the Utah Department of Health. Let's see. Lori Bach, she's the manager of the Maternal and Infant Health Program here, is digging around to find them. This is the booklet from 2004. Here's one from 2012. They feature pictures of fetal development. And when Utah's Department of Health started producing these booklets, the rules around informed consent and abortion were pretty simple. A doctor had to tell a patient about at least two adoption agencies, about the details of development of unborn children, and any risks of the procedure. That was it. The law was 144 words long. But in 1993, this law quadrupled in size. Suddenly, the state required doctors to tell women about their fetus's gestational age, about child support. And that little booklet from the Department of Health became state-recommended viewing for any woman seeking an abortion. And it got thicker.
4: We are required
3: to put in pictures and descriptions of the developing fetus. We're required to discuss current procedures and their risks. It takes Lori a full um, two minutes and, to take off um, all the requirements. There are a few statements that we're required to also give women, and that is that the state of Utah prefers childbirth over abortion. That's a, that's a pretty long list. <laughs> yes. The booklet that is in its printed form is now about 30-plus pages long. Over the years, legislators got creative about how they got inside the conversation about abortion. Some things had to be said out loud. Others had to be written into a consent form. In 1996, legislators asked the Department of Health to make a video. Deciding what path to travel can be a difficult decision. It's called an informed decision.
5: I got my test back this morning.
3: And? I'm pregnant. Does Mike know? No. Sean Emery was pretty new to video production when he won the state contract to make this video. He says he charged about $30,000 to get the job done, which included casting about for just the right fresh-faced girl, who spends much of the video chatting with a friend on a couch or a park bench. You said a state legislator was also sort of involved in scripting it?
6: Yeah, I want to say his last name was Kilpack. Robert Kilpack
3: sponsored the legislation that led to these videos. He died in 2013.
6: But I remember he was involved in making sure the script was written properly, making sure we were on point and not going too far overboard.
3: Kilpack told the Associated Press he wanted to show women what happens with a fetus in abortion. Kilpack was a dentist. He said, a lot of people don't understand embryology like I do. If you save one child, is it worth it? I think it is. The Supreme Court has said states can tell women they prefer childbirth to abortion, but they have to use medically accurate information to make the case. Earlier this year, when a professor at Rutgers asked a group of experts to independently review the documents that states give women when they show up for abortions, they found one-third of the information they evaluated was wrong. I asked her to review this video, and she said the same kinds of mistakes can be found here. Often these are errors that misrepresent the embryo, like when the narrator says this.
7: This is an ultrasound at four weeks. Listen to the
3: sound of the heart beating. The researcher told me heartbeats usually aren't detectable until a pregnancy is seven weeks along. Then there's this. When eight weeks have passed since conception, in the brain, there may be electrical waves— But the researcher found no evidence of brainwaves in any embryology textbook. As legislators have added to the informed consent material, they've become more mindful of the legal line they're walking. Over the past two years, Representative Kevin Stratton has sponsored a couple of bills to further expand this material. This is a moral issue for him.
8: May we be illuminated and guided by divine providence. (laughs) It's my prayer. So
3: this is like a passion of yours.
8: That's probably fair to say. I've been involved in two pieces of legislation, certainly.
3: This year, he wanted to require doctors to say an abortion may be able to be reversed. When I asked him why, he told me about one of his constituents.
8: An individual had gone and commenced the process for a medically induced abortion.
3: That means she was using the abortion pill, which is actually two pills. The first is called mifepristone. The second is called misoprostol. You have to take both for the abortion to be complete. This woman took the first pill, and then she called her provider, and she said,
8: I've really had a change of heart. I would like to know if there's any options at this point. And at that point, she was told that there's nothing you can do. You have to take the second pill. Well, that's inaccurate information. 30 to 50 percent of the women who take mifepristone alone The pregnancy will continue. If you don't take the second abortion pill, you might stay pregnant. But lots of people,
3: including the American Congress of Obstetrics and Gynecology, think reversing an abortion is a deeply misleading phrase. So Stratton knew his legislation wasn't a slam dunk, but he started meeting with people on all sides of the debate to see if he could make abortion reversal part of informed consent. (laughs) One of the people he met with was Dr. Leah Torres. She was nervous. You can hear it because she recorded their meetup at the state capitol. It's her way of taking say, notes. I'm an OBGYN and I've been living in Utah for four years. Shucks, going on five years. Toria has agreed to let us share this audio as long as we only played her side of the conversation. Right away, Stratton surprises her. He says, what if I could change this language so you don't have to lie?
4: I'm on the stand.
3: He says, what about instead of reversing an abortion? We talked about the options and consequences of aborting an abortion. She says, no. My way he keeps running her. more language she by her. She keeps rejecting practice. it. Again and again, Torres comes back to this point. If somebody is uncertain about their
4: abortion, I turn them away. I want them to make sure that they are making the right decision for themselves. And that's regarding abortion, pregnancy, hysterectomy, tubal ligation. Any medical intervention requires informed consent. So he was surprised that I would turn away somebody who wasn't certain. Well, that's what I do. It's my moral and ethical duty as a physician.
3: When Arizona tried to pass a law about abortion reversal, the ACLU sued. A court refused to let the law go into effect. Stratton's getting creative because he doesn't want that to happen to him.
8: Frankly, it was a heavy lift.
3: Did you ever think about giving it up?
8: That's not something I do.
3: By the end of their conversation... Torres is imploring Stratton not to make that conversation she has to have with her abortion patients any more complicated. She tells him, I've had nightmares about giving women an abortion they regret. But she left with a good feeling. And I walked away
4: thinking that was very productive. But I didn't fool myself into thinking I had changed his
3: mind and heart. She hadn't.
9: Seeing all present having voted, the vote is closed. A
3: few days later, Stratton brought his bill to the floor of the House with the exact same language Torres had been arguing against days earlier. That moment was a little surreal, as in,
4: we already discussed this, I can't believe that we're here. And in March, the bill was signed
8: into law. And I think Leah would say that I listened to her and I'm confident that she would admit that it ended up better than it started.
3: After all... His bill doesn't talk about reversing an abortion anymore. Instead, it talks about options and consequences. It says, research indicates that mifepristone alone is not always effective in ending a pregnancy. If you've taken mifepristone but have not yet taken the second drug and have questions regarding the health of your fetus or are questioning your decision to terminate your pregnancy, you should consult a physician immediately. But for Torres, this only intensifies the confusion.
4: The falsehoods that the state requires me to tell patients are easily remedied, except now the patient is confused as far as who they can trust. Do they trust the state? Do they trust their doctor? The doctor is contradicting the state. The state is contradicting the doctor. So nobody wins. Other physicians have no idea what the laws are. Even my partners who don't provide abortions have to ask me, so if a 16-year-old da-da-da-da-da, No one knows the laws because they're so confusing. They're so ever-changing.
3: Doctors don't want to risk it. The law says if you don't do this informed consent right, you can lose your license. There are two abortion clinics left in Utah. That's half as many as there were just a few years ago. Around 60% of women here live in a county without any abortion provider. It's been over a year since Torres performed an
4: abortion. So regarding informed consent, Patients aren't getting it because doctors don't know how to give it because of all of these regulations that require informed consent, ironically.
3: But she keeps counseling women because she's one of the people who know how.
9: Here's a distressing headline I stumbled over this morning, one that I'm highlighting here so it doesn't get lost in this week's tsunami of distressing headlines. Texas lawmakers failed to address rising pregnancy-related death rate during their legislative session. Hannah Gold, writing at Jezebel, the feminist news site, was reacting to and signal-boosting, as the kids say, an Associated Press story that, holy shit, did not bury the lead – From the Associated Press, lawmakers in Texas failed to take any significant action to address the state's skyrocketing rate of pregnancy-related deaths just months after researchers found it to be the highest, not only in the U.S., but the developed world. The pregnancy-related death rate in Texas, the numbers of pregnant women dying every year, doubled between 2010 and 2012, a study from the University of Maryland found. Now, in fairness to Texas, a state dominated by anti-woman, anti-immigrant, anti-gay, anti-trans, pro-Trump, pro-police brutality, pro-pollution, pro-climate catastrophe, elected officials who aren't themselves interested in being fair to anyone, in fairness to Texas, maternal death rates rose all over the United States during the same period, but by a percentage point or two. In Texas, maternal death rates doubled which the authors of the report said couldn't be explained, quote, in the absence of war, natural disaster, or severe economic upheaval. Now, they meant a shooting war, of course, obviously, because you know what? There actually is a war on in Texas, they could have mentioned. And it's not a shooting war, but it is an ongoing war against women in Texas and all other states controlled by Republican televangelists. Legislators in Texas are waging war on women's health care, defunding Planned Parenthood, blocking Medicaid expansion under Obamacare. In 2011 alone, as Molly Redden highlighted at The Guardian, the Texas state legislature, controlled by televangelists, cut $74 million from the state's $111 million family planning budget. So, yeah, there's a war on, a war with casualties and a body count. The news out of Texas is especially galling for those of us whose memories stretch all the way back to March of last year, March of 2016. That's when the Supreme Court heard arguments in Whole Women's Health versus Hellerstedt. Whole Women's Health is a women's clinic in Texas. John Hellerstedt is the commissioner of the Texas Department of State Health Services. Whole Women's Health was challenging Texas's TRAP regulations, TRAP, T-R-A-P, Targeted Regulation of Abortion Providers. The Supreme Court has ruled that women have a constitutional right to abortion, but states can regulate abortion services. TRAP legislation is designed to regulate abortion clinics and services out of existence by creating expensive or impossible mandates around facilities and services. Texas argued before the Supreme Court that the point of its new trap regulations approved in 2013 wasn't to stop women from having abortions or shut down abortion clinics, even though three quarters of the state's clinics shut immediately after the law was passed. Oh, no, no, no. The point was to protect women's health, to protect women who were seeking abortions. Texas's trap law did two things. It required doctors to have admitting privileges from a nearby hospital, and it required clinics to, quote, comply with building regulations that would make them ambulatory surgical centers, as Dahlia Lithwick reported at Slate at the time. The effect of the law would have, quote, required rural women to haul ass across landmasses larger than the whole state of California in order to take a pill in the presence of a doctor in a surgical theater. Texas was shredded in court. You're going to want to go look up Lithwick's piece. If you want a feminist pick-me-up to start your morning and be sure to say a prayer for the health and safety of Justices Ginsburg, Kagan, Sotomayor, and Stevens because Texas's bullshit trap regulations don't make women safer and they didn't apply as the four feminist justices on the Supreme Court drove home that day to other medical procedures that are far, far riskier than abortion, which is a very safe procedure, safer than carrying a pregnancy to term. Colonoscopies, for instance, have higher complication rates and higher death rates, and you can get one of those at a fucking tasty freeze in Texas. So to recap, Texas Republicans gutted women's health services and then crafted trap legislation that would shut abortion clinics. And they didn't do either of those things because they care about protecting women – If they did, they would have done something about their pregnancy-related death rate when they found out about that. Trap legislation isn't about protecting women. It's about controlling women. We knew that all along. And Texas got caught lying to the Supreme Court about that. But if anyone out there was confused about what trap legislation does or what legislators in Texas are up to, if anyone out there thinks Texas talibangalists give one single flying fuck about the health or safety of women in Texas, this news has to open your eyes. Texas enacts one set of policies that cause the pregnancy-related death rate to skyrocket at the same time that Texas argues before the Supreme Court that another policy, their trap laws, is necessary to protect women. And shortly after the Supreme Court overturns Texas's trap law, the state learns of those skyrocketing pregnancy-related death rates and does nothing, fuck all, to protect women after learning that. If you're only half paying attention, if you hear about aggressive abortion clinic regulations and think, well, why not an ambulatory surgical center? Better safe than sorry. Look to the actions of the people pushing these regulations. If they claim they're protecting women on Monday and then do nothing about dead women on Tuesday, they were lying on Monday.
10: This week, the U.S. House voted 237 to 189 to pass a bill that would ban abortions performed after 20 weeks of pregnancy. The bill makes exceptions for cases of rape, incest against minors, and saving mothers' lives, and would not discipline people seeking abortion. Instead, it criminalizes those who perform the abortions or attempt the procedure with fines or up to five years in prison. The Trump administration has shown that they support the measure, and it's already been enacted in several states, but critics say it's unconstitutional. Here to talk about all this is Jenny Brown. Jenny Brown was a leader in the grassroots fight to win the contraceptive morning after pill over the counter in 2003 to 2013. She's the co-author of the Red Stockings Organizing Guide, Women's Liberation and National Health Care, Confronting the Myth of America. And she's also currently project director for National Women's Liberation. Thanks so much for joining us today, Jenny.
0: Yeah, good to be with you.
10: So I just want to start by uh, talking about your initial reactions to this bill passing uh, in the House you know, versions of this 20-week abortion ban bill um, or the Pain-Capable Unborn Child Protection Act failed in 2013 and 2015, but this time there's support from the White House. So what would this bill passing mean for people seeking abortions and who would be the most affected?
0: Well, the bill passing, which I have to say is fairly unlikely because they need to get 60 votes in the Senate, Um, but the What would happen, you know, we're told, oh, well, they're not going to criminalize the women. They're just going to criminalize the doctors. When abortion was illegal, women were dragged from their uh, sick beds after having illegal abortions, taken down to the police station and interrogated. Um, You know, the whole idea that you can make something illegal and yet somehow the women will not be affected the whole point of all of this is, of course, to make it so that women can't get abortions. Um, and when they, when they have a 20-week uh, limit, then that works very well with the other regulations that uh, are now in place in most states, where you have, you have to wait for 24 hours, you have to go back to the clinic, you have to get an ultrasound, all of these things create delays in women's lives. And the idea is, I think it works with this 20-week ban to push a larger number of women over that line until they can't get abortion. So that's the goal here. I think we should be very clear.
10: Um, I wanted to get your response to sort of um, one of the ways that this measure is being backed up. Um, so here's a co-sponsor of the measure speaking on the floor of the House. Michigan Representative Paul Mitchell said, science has confirmed that <clears throat> fetuses born after 20 weeks feel pain. Here's that clip.
9: It is said that nations are judged by how we care for our weakest members. There are no more vulnerable than a preborn child, whom unfortunately we fail to protect. The United States is one of only seven nations that allow elective abortions after 20 weeks of pregnancy when science confirms that the babies feel pain. Accompany us on this list are China and North Korea.
0: What's your response? Well, he didn't mention that Canada is also on that list. Um, you know, abortion in Canada, for example, is not in the criminal code. And that should be the goal here. Abortion is not a criminal thing, it's a healthcare thing. Um, and it's also women's right to self determination. So that needs to be the focus, I think, of, of the movement on this. Um, the whole idea that they're concerned about uh, fetuses feeling pain this is ridiculous that, you know, they're not concerned about women being forced into labor. Um, they're not concerned about uh, the child. Uh, for example, they just failed to renew the child health insurance program. So that's going to mean a lot of pain for a lot of children. Um, clearly, this is not what's going on. They're they're trying to chip away at women's rights. And that's, that's the fundamental thing that's going on here.
10: Uh, it's also been shown that, over 98% of people who get abortions actually get them before the 20-week mark. Um, so how did this procedure, uh, or this measure rather, elicit such strong support if it uh, actually affects so few uh, instances of abortion?
0: Yeah, well, and it affects, in an, it goes along with this thing of trying to delay women's abortions and then force them to come to term. Um, most, most women who are having abortions after 20 weeks are doing it for medical reasons. Or they have been prevented from getting an abortion before 20 weeks by the expense or the restrictions that have been put in place in many, in many cases. So um, in a country like Canada, where abortions are funded through a national health system, there aren't any delays while you try to scrape together the $500 to get the abortion. So women who want abortions can get them. It's, it's much easier. Here, there are all these, uh, you know, hurdles that are put in front of us. And so our experience is that when we, the reason that women are often go past 20 weeks is precisely these anti-abortion laws that are trying to prevent us from getting abortion in the first place.
10: Uh, so I want to talk a little bit more about some of the sort of motivations behind those who supported this measure. Um, So Representative Tim Murphy from Pennsylvania, who backed this bill, was just found to have told an extramarital girlfriend to terminate a pregnancy earlier this year. What does that sort of say about the motivations to back such a bill?
0: Well, I think, you know, we spent about 10 years in a struggle to get the morning after pill over the counter. And the morning after pill is contraception, but we still ran into all of these opponents. And in in fact, it was both the Bush and the Obama administration were opposed to to putting it over the counter. Um, which made us consider what is actually going on behind all of this stuff. Because when you know frequently we're told that these abortion votes aren't really to get rid of abortion. They're really just to excite a grassroots religious base who who uses that as a litmus test on on uh voting. Um, what we discovered is that there is considerable unease if you read conservative think tanks and um even occasionally you'll see it in the New York Times like Russ Duthat had a column a couple of years ago that was More Babies Please. They're very concerned about the birth rate, um, which is below replacement in the US right now. Replacement rate is two point one and and it's uh at one point eight six right now. Um So they're looking long term at economic growth, at Social Security. They're very concerned, and they want us to have more children. Of course, women are resisting this because uh, the conditions for having children in the United States are are some of the worst in the world. We don't have any paid maternity leave. We're one of maybe five countries that don't have any paid maternity leave. We don't have guaranteed health care, as so many other countries have. Um, We're also, you know... Our wages are are basically supposed to cover childcare, as opposed to countries where you have a childcare system that that um, provides childcare to any child that needs it. So, so we have very bad conditions, and as a result, women are having fewer children um, because simply it's hard it's hard to do. Um, and so, in Europe, for example, they've responded to a lower birth rate by coming up with even more subsidies for childcare or providing even more, you know, six months, a year of paid, paid parental leave, paid parental leave for the dads. Here, what we've been getting in response to the lower birth rate is we've been getting more and more difficulty um, getting, getting abortion rights and also facing restrictions on birth control. So some people have just
10: sort of speculated that a late term abortion ban like this would just encourage women to get abortions earlier if they actually want them. Uh what's your response to this? Is that is that really what's going to happen?
0: That it would encourage women to get abortions earlier? Women know when they want abortions. Right. Uh you know, it's it's not like oh it's a mystery and then suddenly at 4 months you decide. Um this this is this is crazy. I mean, the whole idea is that we should be able to get abortions immediately. We want them and not have these terrible waiting periods and hoops and trying to come up with the money. All of this should, you know, should be in the past, Um, so.
10: Um, And in light of all this, uh, a new report from the World Health Organization shows that almost half of all abortions performed worldwide are unsafe um, and that most of the unsafe ones are performed in developing countries, under-resourced countries. In light of all this, uh, talk about, why protecting the right to abortion
0: is important and how we can do so? Well, in our group, we think that it's good to look at the history of how we want abortion rights in the U.S. And it really was a struggle that was very connected to women's freedom, the the women's liberation movement. Um, it was just part of all of the things we need to, to be able to exist in the society as, as first-class citizens and full human beings. And... Um, so we think that we've gotten away from that, and we are now sort of fighting brush fires defensively. Like, on this one, we're going to hear a lot of stories about women who had abortions after 20 weeks and the tragic circumstances, and it was, uh, you know, uh, a terrible thing. And and, But we think it's better to just talk about the fundamental right to abortion, that we need it. This is why they're denying it to us, and, you know rather than having a defensive brush fire on this or that restriction which there are uh, you know almost 500 different restrictions now in the states um, we should demand that abortion not be covered by the criminal code it's not a crime Um, it's a health issue and uh, you know in Canada it works fine we also think that we should have a national health system um, like they do in so many other countries and that abortion should be covered in fact um, you know, under uh, Bernie Sanders' Medicare for All plan, abortion would be covered, and that's how it should be.
10: Uh, so I just want to finish up by asking you about what efforts you're engaging in to protect abortion rights with National Women's Liberation and otherwise, uh, and what viewers can do to ensure that women have rights to abortion access.
0: Yeah, uh, womensliberation.org, you can go there. Um, we have actually been researching the, um, the restrictions on the abortion pill the U.S. got uh, uh, the abortion pill, basically it was approved because they were able to make it as expensive and as difficult to get an abortion with the, with the pill as, they, as it was to get a surgical abortion. But what we're looking at is that there, and the whole consortium of doctors have written about this in the New England Journal of Medicine, there are these restrictions that make it impossible to get it at a pharmacy. You have to have it at a clinic. It has to be dispensed by a hospital or a clinic. And these these regulations really are designed for extremely dangerous drugs. The abortion pill is not a dangerous drug. Um, In fact, it's extremely safe. Um, It can also be taken much earlier than a surgical abortion can be done. There are a lot of advantages to it, but it's very restricted because you can't just get a a prescription from your doctor and go to a pharmacy and fill the prescription. It has to be dispensed by a clinic. That clinic has to be licensed. The people involved have to have gone through a licensing process with the FDA, it's all very complicated. So we think, and there's recently the ACLU has has, um, sued on behalf of a Hawaiian doctor, we think that um, freeing up the abortion pill is an important front in the struggle.
1: As always, I want to remind you that this show runs on recurring donations from listeners just like you. And today I want to thank Moss K. and Raymond in Arkansas. Uh, you, you know, usually I only give the the first initial of the last name for privacy's sake. So I'm really hoping that Raymond's last name isn't in Arkansas, the way he wrote it on Patreon. My apologies, if it is, for outing you. In any case, uh, they both went above and beyond and signed up recently as Social Justice Warrior-level members, so thanks so much to them for their support and to all of the other members and donors who help keep this show going. Now don't forget, members get access to a special members podcast feed that you can subscribe to, just like any other podcast, using your very own smartphone app, computer app, whatever you usually use to listen to podcasts. It replaces Places the regular show feed because it includes ad-free versions of every episode plus members-only bonus content all in one place. That's how you get to hear the bonus show that Amanda and I do, where we dive a little bit deeper on whatever issues are piquing our interest. Uh, member Ryan wrote in after our latest bonus show that looked into how gender dynamics affect men in our culture. Uh, in in one, one sentence, basically, we said that men both benefit from and are harmed by the system that we refer to as patriarchy. Uh, it's an important and often overlooked point. And uh, in his email, Ryan said, quote, I applaud you both giving a reminder that all movements should examine the goals from a holistic societal health perspective, even if that means identifying the benefits of what might be confused as the beneficiaries, which I recall Martin Luther King doing a fair amount of to bridge other oppressed people who may have felt excluded because they didn't easily see how their benefits fit into the calls for justice, unquote. And so what I'm hearing from that is that we're basically like Martin Luther King Jr. for feminism. And that's not me saying that. That's coming from no lesser authority than ryan so members should be sure to check out that bonus content memberships start at six bucks but as i always say whether you can only chip in a buck a month or 20 we really appreciate any support you can give so please think about signing up find us at patreon.com slash best of the left or visit the contribute tab at BestofLeft.com to get started thanks in advance for
5: your support A new rule released by the Trump administration this week blows a huge hole in what's known as the contraceptive mandate, the policy established during the Obama years that requires employer health plans to provide birth control coverage with no copay. Specifically, the Trump rule would allow employers to request an exemption from the mandate for, quote, religious or moral reasons. Jamila Taylor, a senior fellow for women's health at the Center for American Progress, joins me to unpack what the rule really means. Jamila, thanks so much for joining the show. Thanks for having me. Rebecca. So first, walk us through the basics here. How did the contraceptive mandate work when it was established under the Obama year? So basically mm-hmm. before this week. And what effect does Trump's announcement this week have?
11: So what the Affordable Care Act
5: did was
11: it um, made contraceptive coverage um, to the point where women do not have to pay any out-of-pocket costs. Um, And so this has been really important, particularly for most women in this country that use contraception because we know that the costs associated, whether it's with a pack of pills or with an IUD, um, has been prohibitive for women in the past. Um, And you know, it's also made it easier for women in terms of access to contraception. We know that when women don't have access to contraception, it makes them more susceptible to unplanned pregnancies, um, so it was a really important development as part of preventive health services that were
5: offered under the ACA. A lot of people, jokingly, I, I, I'm often one of them. When I pick up my birth control from CVS, I'll often say, "Thanks, Obama," right? Because I'm getting it without a <laughs> absolutely, co-pay. and that's important for a lot of us. But but as you note, it's it's especially important for people for whom access to contraception w- effectively is is not um, within their reach if it if it comes with a price tag.
11: Right. Absolutely. And even for a person like me, you know, a middle class woman, you know, with a great career, um, not having to pay those costs has also been helpful for me. So really across the board, no matter if a woman has economic hardship or not, um, this was really an important development in terms of access to reproductive health care. We know that women were actually able to save $1.4 billion um, in the first year alone once this was implemented. So it's been absolutely huge, not only for women's health, but also Their economic security. So, what does the rule actually
5: mean? What what is it going to do? Who's it going to affect?
11: So, basically, what the rule does I mean, you know, here at CAP, we're looking at it as really a rollback of the contraceptive mandate. It's going to allow any person, insurance plan, um, employer, even a university um, that may be offering health care coverage to students to say, you know, to really put their personal decisions or personal, um, I think, views o- over that of the women that need access to contraception. So it's offering them basically a license to discriminate and deny access to contraceptive coverage. Um, we don't currently know exactly how many women this is going to impact, but we're thinking it's going to be upwards of hundreds of thousands of women.
5: The administration has said, oh, we actually don't think that many women are going to be impacted. They've come out with numbers that are a lot lower than that. Um, But you're arguing that this is actually going to be wide scale impact felt by a lot of folks. Is that because there's not just an exemption possible for religious reasons, something that we've seen in a lot of different contexts? Mm -hmm. This has been a theme throughout this administration um, and from conservatives more generally. But is it because of the inclusion of this wishy-washy moral reasons piece in, in, in the language?
11: Right. Absolutely. I think another thing that we should should pick out here is the fact that you know, currently there is a process for, you know, employers to, to, um, have an accommodation, um, you know, in terms of covering contraceptive care, um, and under the rules, you know, that is not going to be required. So anyone could make a claim, you know, that they, you know, have some sort of issue with offering contraceptive coverage for any host of reasons. And again, as you mentioned, the moral objection piece is squishy because there really is no definition um, of that. It's not something that is actually protected in the law. Um, so it's really going to be a mess, basically. Um, and I think for us and the work that we're doing um, is that I just keep thinking about the women that may not be knowledgeable about this or what's happening, and then they go in to get access to contrac- contraceptive care, you know, thinking that they have it covered and they don't. And again, you know, that is going to be extremely harmful, hard on the pocketbook for millions of women.
5: We, we've had this conversation. I can't even count how many times on the show, but I, I always feel that it's important to remind and that I would be remiss if I didn't of the many benefits of birth control. Mm-hmm. Um, first, there's the obvious. It helps women plan if and when to have children, which can allow them to obtain an education, to work, to achieve financial stability and so forth. Survey after survey puts numbers to this. Mm -hmm. Um, But it's also critical to women's health in a variety of other ways that have nothing to do with family planning. Talk a little bit about that and and what this could mean for women, not just in terms of their their choices over their own body.
11: Absolutely. So we know that there are some one million women in this country that actually use contraception for medical reasons. So that could be to control, you know, um, conditions like endometriosis. Um, control or regulate their periods, um, you know, any host of medical reasons. And so if we sort of look beyond, you know, just controlling, you know, um, whether or not they get pregnant, um, there are also a host of medical reasons. And at the end of the day, um, you know, we should not be imposing restrictions on access to contraception, which is like any other medication um, or prescription that people have, and we're not doing it for other things, you know. So it just goes to show you, um you know, along with some of the other actions of this administration, that they really are focused on discriminating against women.
5: And it's not just a few women either who are are taking contraceptives for purposes like you were describing, whether endometriosis or uh, polycystic ovarian syndrome or a whole range of of things. It's it's 58% of women who take oral contraceptives for reasons other than contraception. So this is not a small number of folks. It's not a small
11: number of folks. And I think another thing that we need to Keep in mind when we're sort of unpacking this issue is the fact that 62 million women in this country have been able to benefit from, you know, this contraceptive coverage mandate. Um, so this is not a small thing. This is huge. Um, I'll also add that women are angry, um, and they're upset and they're ready to fight, you know, to beat this back. And so, um, You know, I think that, again, this sort of just goes along with the theme that we've seen from this administration in terms of their efforts to roll back um, access to reproductive health care for women.
5: Well, and that's a great segue into something else that happened this week. It it wasn't just the contraceptive mandate rollback that we've been talking about. But quietly, Trump's Department of Health and Human Services also dropped a serious bomb that a lot of people haven't really even paid attention to yet because it's still 2017 and the House is still on fire. <laughs> um, and that's that, that HHS actually released a, what it's, it's called a draft strategic plan. This is customary for agencies to, um, to release. It has to do with sort of their goals and how they're going to accomplish their mission. Um, and, and hidden in that draft strategic plan, um, was actually a statement that in the view of HHS, now in 2017 under, under Trump, uh, life begins at conception. What's the significance of that addition to uh, uh, HHS's uh, strategic plan and mission document? Mm-hmm.
11: Well, first off, I'll just say that that is completely ridiculous <laughs> that that um, statement is included in, you know, a government document, um, a guidance document from the Department of Health and Human Services. But what it's going to potentially do is open up the floodgates for funding and supporting organizations, um, you know, that are essentially anti-choice, that are not providing women with um, reliable, um, medically accurate information about, you know, their um, education or even their options um, in terms of reproductive health care. So it's extremely problematic. Um, And um, yeah, it's just a shame that this administration is sort of, you know, using this conservative ideology to sort of run the government and sort of to, to help ingrain that in, you know, everything, um, you know, that they are
5: doing, which is really pretty awful. Conservatives often like to say that they care about evidence-based policy, right? This is one of the things that makes me bang my head against the wall, perhaps <laughs> more such than BS anything.
11: It's if I can say that. Well, you just did. you know what? We're not going to edit it but out it because is. you're right. It you're is right. right. It is right because nothing that they do is based in science or evidence. When particularly you know? in this space, right? Especi- if you're going to talk
5: about supporting abstinence-only education, for example, right. something that we have all the evidence in the world to show doesn't work and backfires majorly, Right. Uh, the same is true with, with uh, the risk of potentially funding um, these so-called clinics that you were yeah. one of the examples of what you were just describing. Uh, tell me in, in just the minute that we have left, you actually, you know a lot about these faux clinics I do. that really exist to try to prevent women from, from accessing mm-hmm. uh, their rights under Roe v. Wade. Mm-hmm.
11: Yes. And I can say that from personal experience. You know, I actually went to um, a place which later, you know, I figured out was a pregnancy crisis center, but initially I was thinking that it was a place that I could go to, um, as a woman who was pregnant, thinking that I could get, you know, the full, um, array of information that I needed to decide, you know, how I wanted to move forward with my pregnancy. And it was not like that, you know, the information that I was received was very targeted and focused on continuing on with the pregnancy, um, you know, to the point where, um, you know, it was just, you know, they were very persuasive and pushing me into one direction as opposed to the other. When I did ask about options for abortion, you know, they were not willing or, or able probably to give me the information that I needed. So, um, and these, um, you know, fake, clinics, um, as I would call them, they're operating all over the country, and they continue to give women
5: misguided information about their pregnancy options. And a real risk, as you noted, that they could become government-funded, uh, the become... way this draft strategic plan is written.
11: Right. Absolutely. And then we probably don't have time to even get into the fact that, you know, you sort of go into these places, again, rooted in this ideology, and um, let's say women go in there and they decide to continue on with those pregnancies, conservatives don't want to be helpful in terms of when those children are born um, with the services and support that they need. You know, we continue to see efforts to cut programs like SNAP and WIC, um, even efforts to um, restrict access to maternity care for women. So this really is a broader, I think, strategy, um, particularly, I think, focused at um you know, low income people, particularly in this country.
5: I want to close with some words from Anna North, a reporter at Fox, uh, who wrote about the rollback this week of the contraceptive mandate. She writes, one thing is just as true now as it was in the 19th century. You can have state or corporate control over pregnancy, or you can have a healthy, productive and free female citizenry, but you can't have both.
1: You've reached the activism portion of today's show. Now that you're informed and angry, here's what you can do about it. Today's activism, keep birth control copay free. In a thinly-veiled attack against women and full-on pander to the religious right, the Trump administration announced last month that it would roll back the ACA birth control mandate. With that rule gone, employers and institutions are no longer required to provide insurance coverage for birth control for their employees or students, if they cite moral and religious objections. And companies and universities are already taking advantage. Notre Dame has announced it will no longer provide birth control to students using university health insurance coverage in 2018. Unless they have proof of, quote, appropriate medical necessity as shown by a treating physician, unquote. Even then, they would still have to pay a copay. Lawsuits have already been filed on behalf of three Notre Dame students. This rollback is a regressive and archaic move to assert control over women while claiming a win for religious freedom. On the same day, Jeff Sessions also issued sweeping guidance on religious freedom that has the potential to damage civil rights protections for the LGBTQ community. As you might expect, Paul Ryan said it was, quote, a landmark day for religious liberty, unquote. The fact is, expanding rights of a powerful few to allow them to suppress, dictate, and control the personal lives of many is a further perversion of the idea of freedom in America and nothing less than straight-up bigotry and misogyny. In addition to the pending lawsuits by organizations like the National Women's Law Center, the Women's Equality Center has launched a multifaceted campaign to fight back. The Keep Birth Control Copay Free campaign allows you to look up the cost of your birth control without insurance coverage and send Trump the invoice for your would be expenses. Additionally, the campaign makes it easy for you to send your comments to the Department of Health and Human Services, provides a toolkit for speaking out at your local town halls and contacting members of Congress, and infographics about birth control to spread the word and educate on social media." The hashtag handsoffmybc has become the rallying cry online, and you can go to keepbcfree.com today to get involved and take action to protect co-pay-free birth control. The ruling goes into effect at the end of November, so for the sake of yourself, your loved ones, and all those you don't even know who will be impacted, make your voice heard. The segment notes include all of the links to this information as well as additional resources, and as always, this and every activism segment we produce is archived and organized, under the activism tab at bestoftheleft.com. So if you're sick and tired of Republicans playing political football with women's health care, be sure to hit the share buttons to spread the word about the Keep Birth Control Copay Free campaign via social media so that others in your network can spread the word too.
12: The underlying fight is here. It seems like there's within the Democratic Party, there are people who are talking the language of electoral expediency to want to squelch choice. Do you think that they're really motivated by electoral expediency, or do you think that there's actually an anti choice sentiment within the Democratic Party that we need to drag out in the open?
7: It's a great question. I think my gut says, um, and I might be being generous, but my gut says that they are motivated by electoral expediency and that the their swiftness and the casual nature in which they are rejecting abortion access as an important issue is more of a symptom of a fundamental misunderstanding of what access to reproductive health care means. And I think for a lot of people, we are very well versed in how the right Rejects abortion as an issue. We we know how they frame it. On the left, we have people who might actually have a religious objection that they they think they can weigh in personally. But a lot of folks are just like, "Well, it's not that big a deal." <laughs> and, and often, folks without uteruses seem to think that. Yeah, yeah. It's it's curious how that goes hand in hand. Um, but but they're they're not thinking that it's a big deal and. I actually had the opportunity to sit down with one of these folks who who clearly was somebody who was energized by Bernie Sanders political message, wanted to sit down um, and discuss some things I had said on Facebook about abortion and the importance of abortion rights and really was asking me to explain why you can't have economic justice without having reproductive justice. I had a good two hour chat with this dude. And it was, it was really fascinating how the various angles that he had not thought through. Mm -hmm. And I think we've been on the defensive, uh, you know, trying to defend the status quo with abortion access. And I've got my issues with that, but I think we've been on the defensive so long that we need to, you know, shake it off a little bit and remind the left that there's a reason why abortion is an absolutely necessary litmus test to a progressive plank. What kind of ideas were most sort of eye-opening
12: for him when you explained to him about the links between reproductive and economic justice?
7: I think the, the way I explained it to him was just through an imagination of how women experience the world and that when you look at states that do not have, that, you know, we have abo- abortion deserts The state of Missouri has one provider. So, you know, multiple states are seeking access through our one provider. And when you look at the impact that that has in communities, then you really can kind of break down exactly why, you know, a robust economic plan isn't going to work for a woman who is not able to plan her family, who's not able to access the full range of options to do so. Many of these anti-abortion Candidates believe that birth control is abortion. They're against emergency contraception. They don't believe in in vitro fertilization. You know, that it's not as it's not just wrapped up into abortion. And that's not to discount how important abortion is. But when they're shutting down reproductive health care providers, they're shutting down women's ability to participate in economic prosperity. And when I explained to him that in the state of Missouri, you are not going to succeed with any economic proposal, if you do not support women, support women led homes, and give them the support and stability they need to actually participate in the programs that you're dreaming up. He really started to get it. He was just like, Oh, wait, (laughs) you know, this is a big deal. What does supporting women led homes look like in practice? Gosh, that's a, oh, that's a great question. I think definitely, um, gosh, the things that come to mind are, you know, supporting our need for paid leave and and understanding the radical impact that would have on so many women-led homes. When I think about raising the minimum wage for low-wage fast food workers, in in the people I know and the friends I have who are trying to live on seven dollars and some change an hour, their lives would radically change. They would not have to work three jobs and miss out on their children's lives. They would be able to participate in their schooling in a more robust and and deliberate way. You know, universal health care would...
12: Just to be able to parent the kids you have the way that you would want to is such a big issue in reproductive justice, I think. It is. Shows how it all fits together.
7: Yeah, it's huge. And... And if you're privileged enough to experience that, then, you know, all too often people who have that privilege are segregated from experiencing folks who don't. And, you know, I'm lucky enough to live in a city in in, in, a, in a neighborhood where I am, you know, knee deep in the working class. But, you know, my friends are struggling to afford transportation. We have a diaper, a diaper charity because people can't afford diapers for their children. And the vast majority of these people are working harder than I do. They're working three jobs and they simply cannot afford rent and food and transportation. And now, the that's best
12: what I call deplorable, that people can yeah. be working more than full-time and not be able to provide diapers for their children.
7: Exactly. Exactly. And, and so that's one of those issues that transcends across rural to to city. So if you go out state Missouri, you've got the same dynamic. You've got people who are struggling, who are working, a lot of woman-led homes that simply can't make ends meet. So we need to, you know, maybe if we started listening to you know, what women-led homes and what black women who are, you know, primarily lead our homes need and built policies that support that, we might be able to actually appeal to both people who live in cities, but also people who live in more rural areas.
12: And that's supposedly what all the sort of economic rationalism is supposed to be aiming at anyway, is bridging those gaps. Mm-hmm. And they say yeah. drop abortion because it's divisive. But really, the, it's the flip side that works just as well. You embrace abortion because it unites our most, our most enthusiastic and loyal base.
7: Exactly. Exactly. And, I'm, and I, I struggle to understand how, how folks can think that they're bridging those gaps when the only considerations that they're willing to, to make changes for are white, straight men.
1: We've just heard clips today starting with On the Media discussing the absurd requirements imposed on abortion providers at the state level. Dan Savage highlighted a story about the increasing rate of pregnancy related deaths in the wake of sharp cuts to Texas's family planning budget. The Real News pointed out that abortion in the US is treated as an issue of criminality rather than healthcare. Off-Kilter discussed a variety of ways that reproductive rights are being chipped away at from all directions. Our activism for today is in support of the Keep Birth Control Co-Pay Free campaign. And finally, we just heard the breach explaining why the Democrats cannot afford to ignore this issue in favor of an economic-only message, because there is no such thing as economic justice without reproductive justice. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now... We'll hear from you.
13: Hi, Jay. This is Nick from California. I'm calling in regards to the gun issue. I'm not an expert in the field of guns, and I'm not a sociologist. However, my understanding from reading very credible secondary sources, as well as talking with sociologists who actually do study criminality and society, that there's a pretty good consensus that bringing a gun into your home makes you a lot less safe, makes a lot more likely for suicides to be completed, and you're also a lot more likely to injure yourself or, or a loved one with a gun in your home than to defend yourself or your family. Uh, so I know as a best left community we strongly value consensus, science, and data and so I urge the listeners who think that the, the guns make them safer to try to seek out uh, information regarding that consensus so again if you really feel like you need a weapon a pepper spray or a taser might be a way to go and look if you're okay with raising that risk because it's worth it to you to have a gun so be it like if you're saying yeah I know it makes me less safe but I really just want to have this thing so be it I mean that, that that's a, that's a choice. people choose to ride motorcycles even though they're generally less safe too that's okay but we need to be upfront about that and not have sort of this denialism regarding the facts. And also, one other last point, if we start needing to arm the proletariat to rise up against their masters, we, we fail. This whole endeavor, listening to a podcast, it's, it's all been a failure and our political action has failed. And our society is, I mean, literally all bets are off at that point. Sorry, man. Keep up the good work. I know you're just going on a good show and calling section, but whew. all right, man. Thank you.
2: Hi, Jay. This is Erica from Massachusetts again, calling back, just responding to your response to my comment about the whole DNC, Bernie Sanders, Donna Brazil, whatever. Um, And I appreciate that because I do think it's a problem to have just, oh, this mentality of if the D is after your name, everything's fine. If it's not technically, then it's not. Um, I, I'm actually from the Midwest. I'm from in a state that shall remain unnamed, where you could run a hairbrush with an R after it, and it would win every single time, simply because it had that R. And I think maybe I didn't articulate myself as well as I wanted to, in that I think the real focus is the problem of party politics. I was interested in Martin O'Sley, and just in terms of thinking about his politics, I've never obviously met him, but you know, sort of seeing that a party machine and a system that is really about being a party as an entity, whether it's a governmental entity or something extra-governmental, which it should be, obviously, is interesting, and I think it's kind of dominated the way that we approach politics and the way we talk about it. Even to your point of that interviewer said, well, he's not really one of us, meaning Bernie, and so that should impact what we think about him, or what we vote about him, or whether or not fairness applies. And so I guess that's sort of what my response is, is, A, I don't think I articulated it well. B, I agree with you in that, you know, this idea of labeling and and the act of running down to either the DMV or whatever and filing paperwork to join the proper party is an issue and I think kind of blinds us to what it is voting is and what it is that debates can be, um, ballot access, which is completely distinct as an issue, but related to this very conversation. So I do appreciate, uh, you responding to that. And I was kind of curious what the answers would be. And I imagine there may be more responses as well. Maybe not. Uh, in any case, I look forward to the next show. Uh, have a great night and keep on keeping on.
6: Uh, hey, Jay, this is Greg calling from Baldwin Park, California. I just finished listening to episode 11 of 43, Strategies for Winning a Coalition. And, you know, this is a great episode. I loved it. But at the end, you were, you were talking about how discussions about the primary uh, boiled down to people having crushes on celebrities, whether it's, you know, a Bernie supporter or a Hillary supporter. And the thing is that as a a you know, Bernie supporter myself who um, because of what they've done in breaking the primary um, has left the Democratic party and become uh, you know a progressive independent you know i really find that look you know the way you looked at uh, the motivations behind like Bernie supporters to be really disingenuous uh a lot of Bernie supporters that i know of practically all of them um their emotions and you know, rage and passion didn't come so much as a of journey, but from the fact that they knew, you know, we've seen ever since the, the primary, when it went to Hillary, F.R. back people were calling out, you know, the fact that it was rigged, that, you know, uh, in New York City, it has just come out officially that, you know, I think 200,000 voters were uh, kicked off the rolls during the primary. I mean, you know, news of this corruption is old. I mean, this is old news. We've all known this for a long time. It's just only been now proven. So the truth is, when you talk to Green supporters, for them, for us, a lot of it just comes from the fact that we feel like we saw the Democratic Party, ironically enough, denying democracy to their constituents, you know, by denying us our voices. So it's a civil rights kind of feeling kind of uh anger that that's out there you know feeling of being denied what we perceive of uh, as our rights to to vote and have a say in how a party operates you know whereas i think for a lot of people who are hillary supporters they look at it more as a uh, cult of personality about her you know because she would have been the first woman president. And that's a valid, wonderful thing to have, you know, a first woman president. But, you know, all this corruption that we've seen really shows that she can't be, you know, she, in my opinion, she can't be the face of the first female president. Because one would want that face to belong to someone who is involved in things like this and corruption like this. So I just wanted to throw it out there as a Bernie supporter, I felt. You know, that it should be further stated that it's not just a love of Bernie, or only a love of Bernie as a person, but, you know, it's, it's the fact that he pushed for progressive policies and other things that she was stood against, like $15 minimum wage and universal health care and universal college. These are policies that, she, that Hillary and the DNC do not support. Anyways, I just want to give you that much. Uh, Hear from you later,
1: Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. First of all, a quick note on a new show policy that I just made up and implemented for the more uh, on-the-ball... Eagle-eyed of you, you may have noticed that this episode is coming out a day late, uh, not on Tuesdays or, or Fridays as is usually promised. But here's what happened. So, uh, as, as many of you are going to be aware, uh, daylight savings went away this past week, and uh, and where I am, we we had pretty much a week of more or less clouds and rain, uh, and the forecast from here. Going forward for the next week is also clouds and rain, uh, coupled with the the whole like five p.m. sundown. And Friday morning, when I woke up, totally prepared to make a new show, uh, the sky was crystal blue, beautiful temperature, you know everything about it. And I did a couple hours of work, and I thought, no, this is bullshit. We can't. We can't do this this way. What purpose is there in owning your own show and setting your own schedule if you uh, lock yourself inside all day during a nice day, knowing that you have a week of rain facing you? So the new policy is not to like just not do a show and like skip it like a, like a rerun day or anything you know anything like that. It's just hey. If it's going to be a really nice day on a show day, and the weather's going to be shit after that, I might have to take the day off because uh, if we're going to make it through the winter, especially this winter in this political climate, not to mention uh, you know regular climate, uh, you know you, you gotta you gotta get the sun where you can get it and uh, you know take advantage of those nice days. So so we went for a nice long walk. Uh, and, uh, got some, got some nature, got some exercise, got some sun and, uh, and, you know, and trading, trading a day like that and, and then doing some work on a rainy Saturday. I'll take that deal anytime. So, so that's the new policy. I have no idea how many times it's going to be implemented because, you know, it would just, uh, go as the wind blows, uh, as they say. And, uh. So just be aware of that, but also you know I don't know maybe maybe uh, take some inspiration from it. If you have any control or flexibility over your own schedule, and uh, you can convince yourself or your boss or whoever to let you shift your work or schedule to allow you to get out into the sun and uh, and some nature when the weather's nice. If where you are, it's not going to be nice all that often uh, for the next few months. I would make a go of that, because the worst thing that can happen is that they'll say no. Uh, the best thing that can happen is that you get a lot more sun and a lot more nature uh, when you really need it, and you know, we can't just go around talking about the importance of self-care all the time and then sitting inside on nice days, and it just doesn't jive. Secondly today, I notice this happen every once in a while, where in the, in the rare instances, people call in and criticize me or the show or, you know, something I've said n- less than you'd expect. Like, I promise I am not hiding a bunch of critical voicemails that I just don't play on the show to, like, protect myself. I just don't get that many critical messages, which is really nice of you guys to not bother calling in and saying mean things about me or uh, or, or whatever. But when I get these criticisms like this last message you know it was, a, it was a very mild light criticism but i find that when people disagree with me i find myself agreeing with them and i think i don't know i feel like i always agreed with them and and i don't know if i'm just good at some sort of mental jujitsu that that lets me switch things. I'm like, no, 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 I've, I've agreed with you all along. Um, you know, makes me feel like I should be a politician or something. But in response to that call, uh, you're talking about, you know, what I described as the celebrity crush problem of the 2016, uh, primary, and you know, and he he was making these differentiations between the Bernie people and the Hillary people, and and I, I agree with his analysis for the most part. I agree that what I described as the celebrity crush played out in very different ways with the two candidates. So, like with Clinton, you definitely get a lot more of the cult of personality, where you hear, uh, you know, lots of people saying. How much she deserved this and how she's been through so much. And, you know, they don't want to hear any criticism of her because it feels like just more unjust criticism of this person that the Republicans have been pouring on her for decades. And it really doesn't have that much to do with her policies other than like general Democratic-ish policies that, you know, those people are in favor of. With Sanders, as as the caller suggested, it it was more of a cult of ideology. It really was... not about the person, because a lot of people hadn't heard of Bernie Sanders until recently. Uh, So it really was about the ideas and the possibility of electing someone who was really going to advocate for fundamentally new ideas was so exciting that some of the most ardent supporters often refused to hear any criticism of him for fear that criticism would prevent him from winning. And so any suggestions that he could do a better job wrapping his mind and his message around the, you know, the modern movement for black lives was met with a lot of sit-down-and-shut-up-ism based on arguments that, you know, we, we need to only show praise and support so that he may win the primary. So, so yeah, I, I completely agree that the two versions of Celebrity Crushes were very different. Uh, the structures of the conversations that you may want to have, though, weren't all that different. You know, if, if you wanted to have a critical analysis of the campaign, you know, on either side, depending on who you're talking to, you you're you may just be met with a brick wall, you know, uh, so no matter how valid your criticism, no matter how much your comments are actually intended to help the candidate be better, you may still run into the cult of you can't criticize because criticizing Only hurts, it doesn't help, which is just a fundamental difference in strategy, basically. So I know that others will obviously have different opinions on that, but that's what I meant when I talked about the uh, the celebrity crush concept. Not that they are equal, not that the two camps acted uh, in exactly the same way for the exactly the same reasons, or that both sides were you know c- you know completely uh, irrationally in love with their own candidates in the same way. It, it, it played out differently on both sides. Uh, the the surface level stuff, though, the, the refusal to hear criticism, that type of thing, uh, that was sort of surprisingly similar. So, if you have thoughts on that or anything else, you can keep the calls coming in at 202-999-3991. That's going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash left, as that is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we're putting out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode, all that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So, coming to you from inside the beltway at outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday. Thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.
8: And it's a crying shame How we get so trained